Welcome to Credit Union Conversations Podcast with your host, Mark Ritter, a forward-thinking CEO who excels in helping credit unions, small businesses, and real estate investors succeed. Join Mark as he explores current trends, interviews industry experts, and get fresh insights on optimizing your operations and delivering the best possible services to credit union members. Hello, this is Mark Ritter, your host of Credit Union Conversations and the CEO of Member Business Financial Services, a CUSO based in Pennsylvania that helps credit unions with business lending topics and issues all across the country. Uh, I'm so glad you could join us today. You know, some episodes I like to have a a, a person in to do a deep dive on on an area or or their subject or area expertise. And then sometimes I like to bring in uh, people who I admire and respect, and we can talk a little bit about everything, uh, a little bit of everything that's going on in the credit union space and, uh, you know, kind of hit and and see where the conversation takes us. So joining me today is the CEO of Launch Credit Union, Joe Meraki. Joe, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show, Mark. Oh, I, I am looking forward to it. And uh, so this is conversation is going to feel pretty casual to the listeners because Joe and I love to, to talk about the credit union world and philosophy and what's going on. So we are just lifting this up so people can kind of hear uh, the things that we talk about uh, in, in our day. So let's yeah, get going. And Joe, you have a great story. So, so tell people kind of your background and origin story and, uh, and what you're up to today. Sure. Uh, yeah, I grew up in, uh, in North Jersey, and I attended one of the state colleges there in New Jersey. Got an economics degree, and one of the courses I took there was uh, money and banking. Got me interested in banking as a career. I started out working for a savings bank in New York City. Was there for eight years and moved up to a vice president position. Then I moved over to the credit union space when I joined a credit union in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was there for 12 years. And during that 12 years, I really had the opportunity to to run all the various different departments. I was the number two person there at the credit union uh, for 10 of those 12 years and was the EVP. And the CEO who had hired me was only a few years older than me, uh, was not you know planning to go anywhere. So uh, at one point after 12 years, I decided it was time to move to a CO spot. I was in Tucson for four years. And then uh, 11 years ago, I, I came here to, to launch, which at that point in time was Kennedy Space Center Federal Credit Union. We rebranded as launch in uh, 2014. So it's, it's, been, uh, it's been a great uh, you know, a career in, in banking and, and particularly in credit unions where I've been most of that time. And, and what I really like about what you said is, and I think it's a flaw in our industry today, is we, I think we've shifted sometimes too much in terms of specializations for people in careers and saying, oh, if you're a mortgage person, you're going to be a mortgage person. If you're compliance, you're compliance, as opposed to where I, I feel like uh, it used to be people were given an opportunity to learn a lot of different areas and expand and have a much broader skill set versus being very good in one area today. What do you what do you think about that? Do, do you agree with that? Disagree? 
Oh, absolutely agree. I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of what one of the keys to, to my success and ultimately becoming a CEO was the fact that I had that opportunity, uh, you know, initially at, at the bank, uh, you know, I sort of got into a management position and, and learned a lot of leadership skills. But while my time there at Kirtland Federal Credit Union in New Mexico, you know, I, I started out over seeing marketing and, and part of the operations in the call center. Uh, then, you know, within a couple of years, I ended up becoming the C- CFO uh, and did that for nine of the years I was there. But uh, then later on, I was able to take over the lending area. And it really was because there was suddenly some vacancies in that area and they needed the leadership. So I sort of took it over temporarily and that became a permanent part of my role as well. And and then later on, even took over technology and, and the, the operations area and and then delegated off the, the finance portion. So it, it really was an important part of my development, moving around and and leading these different functional areas because each time I took over an area, I really tried to identify how that, that business unit supported the overall strategy of the credit union and, and making sure we had a strategy that supports the overall corporate uh, st- strategy of the credit union. Uh, and then really making sure I had the right people on the team, you know, the right skill set, the right training, the right technology. And uh, and that really was the, the key to my success was having that well-rounded background. And, you know, I, I had not originally even thought about becoming a CEO, to be honest with you. It was not really part of my career goal, uh, if you had asked me 20 years ago. Uh, and it really just, uh, it evolved that way because of having the opportunity to, to lead the different functional areas. So one thing I'm always fascinated by when, when for somebody like yourself, you, you, you grew up and uh, started out in the Northeast and New Jersey and the New York City area. You went to New Mexico uh, out there in the uh, Southwest United States, and now you're in Florida. What, 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 what's your favorite area to live in? Or, uh, or I won't make it, or if you don't want to name one, what do you like? Uh, a, 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 what was your favorite thing about the different areas? Well, yeah, I, I grew up in, in New Jersey. Obviously, that wasn't my choice. But, uh, you know, I, I, I got a good education there and, and uh, learned a lot. But uh, ultimately, you know, early in my career, had a young family, it was really about the, the quality of life and, and being able to you know, make enough money to, to have a decent quality of life, which New York City is a high expense area. So that really precipitated the, you know, to move out to New Mexico in the Southwest and and uh, enjoyed my time there. But, uh, you know, I'm in Florida and really loving it here too. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I obviously like the warmer weather. Uh, that's, I gravitated to the warmer weather and, and, uh, and it's, it's really been, it's been a good, part of my, uh, my story, but it's also, you know, telling that I was willing to relocate for career opportunities also, you know, part of it was quality of life. Part of it then later became the opportunity to be CEO, uh, was enhanced if I was willing to relocate. Yes. And that's where I think it's, it's important to be flexible. Uh, and, and just it, it makes sense. The bigger net you can cast, the better opportunities you can have in life to set you up for later on in life to, to where you can do what you want because uh, you, you are willing to be flexible uh, in other parts. parts. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I love 
Uh, you know, I've lived in a couple different areas and I loved seeing different areas, different food, different culture, different types of people. So I think it's kind of fun too, to, to be flexible and move around. So. Yeah. And, and that's really touches on something that I think is important nowadays, even in leadership positions is that flexibility. Um, because it's not just, you know, in terms of where you're living and, and the, 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 the food palette and whatnot there locally, but but things are changing so quickly in our industry and, and just the competitive factors, technology, uh, you know, social forces, demographic forces. So you really need to be constantly reassessing and, and flexible on, on your perspective and your understanding of what's going on. So I think it really is a mindset. They sort of call that the growth mindset. I think there's a book by that name. Um, and, and I think that's an important trait for uh, leaders today at credit unions and in business in general. So one of my favorite things to talk about with you and, and why I really enjoy our conversations is your outlook on QSOs. Not that I'm just a QSO CEO, but just how you look at it. Uh, give people a rundown on the different QSOs that, that you're currently involved with. Oh, sure. I'd be glad to, Mark. And, and of course, our relationship started with, with us joining MBFS back in uh, late 2019. Uh, so, but prior to that, we, we, our first QSO was actually Lone Star Technologies, which is a technology firm that offers a technology platform for retail finance. And, and that's basically what, we, what we're doing there is we're taking a page out of the consumer finance company's playbook and we're partnering with these local merchants and becoming their financing arm. So, and Lone Star Technology provides a really user-friendly, intuitive software that when you go into a merchant, they push out a link to the smartphone, to the, to the prospective member anyway, their customer in, the, in their lobby. And it's branded with Launch's name. They apply directly into our LOS. So that really was our first venture into uh, QSOs. We started off as a client, which is typically how we work with QSOs, and then later actually became an investor in that, in that particular QSO. But the key there was it starts with the credit union strategy. We saw it as another growth engine for the credit union. We were well capitalized and had the opportunity to grow faster than than typical in order to redeploy that capital to a bigger asset base. So uh, it was really part of our growth strategy of the credit union as a whole. And we really approach PUSOS that way and say, okay, how does it fit into the credit union strategy? Uh, it's not just a good idea. So that that's really the starting point. And then from there, we went to uh, MBFS as our next QSO, which of course has been really a home run for us because we have almost 300 million on the books now of, of high quality uh, commercial loans, commercial real estate loans. And uh, and then we've, we've up to now, we have six different QSO investments and we have a seventh one that we're currently evaluating. So Really, again, it starts with the credit union strategy and how it fits into our business operation. It, one of, one of uh, my pet peeves is I, I, I see a, uh, the, there's a consultant out there working with credit unions, and uh, I'll, I'll kindly say he's anti-CUSO and anti-third-party 
partnerships and he is just focused on you you have to do it internally you have to bring in a member you have to make them a member uh and i always say well that's fine but you can do both uh, you know, you can bring in those organic, but you know how tough and competitive that can be these days. And if you can balance it out and bring in third other people for who you know their credit, who had a need, and then hope to expand those relationships, well, that's a win-win. And, and I, you, it's, you can't just be focused on, you know, the, the, a bunker mentality where you just say, I'm going to have a branch, I'm going to, you know, market to the people around the block, because the world is getting bigger. And I think as you've shown, QSOs can, can help expand that reach much more quickly, and effectively than, than trying to build everything yourself organically. Oh, I absolutely agree, Mark. Uh, I mean, in terms of growth strategies, typically, you know, you either build it, you, you buy it, you know, sort of acquire it, or use the staying with the bees you you sort of borrow it which is what we really do with cusos and and i'm a big advocate of that because you know by joining mbfs and these other cusos we're able to leverage not just their economies of scale from day one but also the economies of scope the ability and, and expertise uh, so it allows us to to ramp up these growth strategies much more quickly and at a lot lower risk so it really is a win-win uh, I'm a big fan of of QSOs. We've, you know, that's why we have a, a half a dozen now, and uh, in terms of QSO investments, as well as some other ones where we're actually a client. Uh, so yes, it's it's a way that we can compete with larger competitors because we can replicate that that economies of scale and the economies of scope, and and do it, uh, you know, in, in a manner that we just would not be able to do in house. Now you have Mark Brewer at the credit union who who helps guide a lot of these QSOs, does the vetting, kind of watches those relationships and, and, and yourself. And I am sure on a nonstop basis, you are solicited with somebody coming to you saying, we have this idea, this is our QSO, this is what we want to do. What's you and Mark's strategy to, to quickly say, okay, this might be somebody worth talking to versus people in this category, this isn't us, I'm not interested? Yeah, that's a good question because you're absolutely right. Get a lot of, I'm very active on LinkedIn and get a lot of uh, requests through there from various different fintechs and whatnot. And the first criteria really, uh, again, is, okay, does it fit into the credit union strategy? Um, and and so that's really the starting point. Uh, and then typically we, we really, you know, Mark and I might take the first cursory look at it, but it really is the business unit that then really drives that first level of, of sort of due diligence and, and does it help them uh, succeed at the business unit level. So for example, Akuvo, one of the more recent QSO investments we've made, it's a collections uh, software. So it also integrates into the, into the lending platform a little bit, but it's primarily a, a collection software. So we, you know, they initially approached me and, and, and Mark because we've had a prior relationship with, with the person that's developing that, Jay Mossman. But uh, we really let the, the collections team, and it's actually really an interdepartmental team. Collections really took the lead, but it involves everybody else that potentially would be 
uh, involved with that software in terms of the implementation and the use. And we let them come up with the actual decision on, yes, they really like it from a business vantage point. So I've learned over the years that I may have a really good idea or think something is the right thing to do. Um, but oftentimes when it gets down to the business unit level, they come back to me and say, well, Joe, it, it really doesn't work and here's why. So we really rely on those business units, uh, both Mark and I, to help really make that, that decision that yes, this, this will work for us as a credit union. Then, uh, then we do that second level of due diligence and make sure, okay, yeah, this is a, a company that we want, you know, we feel through the due diligence is, is a viable entity. It has a, you know, a solid uh, business plan as, as well as prospects for the future. I, I'm glad you said that about the business units, uh, you know, really digging deep and rolling up their sleeves, because I find that as a CEO, I can help make suggestions and say, we should check this out. But I try to temper my words and make it very clear to say, you need to come back with me with good, bad, or indifferent on what you think of this. And not just, oh boy, Mark wants to do this, I think. So, you know, we just have to do it. No, you know, I, I want honest and open feedback. And I think you do the same thing at launch. Uh, as a, you know, There's nothing worse than, you know, the CEO. CEO's words can be very powerful uh, throughout an organization and it has to be open and honest. So I, I think you do a good job at that. Yeah, well, thanks. I've, I've sort of learned that from making a few mistakes early on, um, because you're absolutely right. When I was first CEO, I, I don't think I fully realized or appreciated that when I made a statement about something, uh, it might be interpreted as that's a directive. Um, so I had to, to really learn you know, from, from the, that mistake early on of, you know, having, you know, thinking out loud about a couple things. And next thing I know, I have staff working on it. Uh, to make sure that I was more careful with my words, but also to communicate that and develop that culture where, hey, just because I, you know, am, am endorsing something as a concept or an idea, I'm really relying on them to to really come back with the, with a with a, with the decision and the recommendation and and so yeah, it is a change in culture. It's it's been a change in in my behavior as well, just to make sure that uh, I'm not too directive in in the way I make my statements. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about for, uh, for new and uh, or, or aspiring CEOs. Um, one of the reasons I love our industry is, you know, my, my old mentor, the late Bob Marquette at Members First, you know, he, he always had a standing rule where if somebody, if another credit union wanted help, we helped them. And if they needed information, we would give it to them. If they needed guidance, that's what we do. And that's actually one of the, the reasons why I got into the QSO space so much, just because of that sharing and cooperation. And that led me, led me down the QSO path because I enjoy that philosophy and culture. And, and I know you, you enjoy also talking to new and aspiring CEOs uh, generally, you know, what are those conversations like for maybe people who just got the, that corner office seat uh, or, or they're trying to get there? Well, it's a slightly different conversation whether they're, if they're looking to get there, it's, 
you know, again, uh, first thing is, is you've got to be a continuous learner. Uh, you've got to constantly be learning. Uh, and, and when I mean learning, that means there's an unlearning element in there. And that uh, when you learn something new, sometimes it, it undoes a previous uh, understanding of, of an issue. So you really have to be constantly learning on an active basis. And, you know, the people that typically get ahead, uh, not just at credit unions, but in business in general, they're investing in themselves and constantly learning even outside the job. So if, if you have a strong motivation in terms of learning and, and constantly acquiring new knowledge and new understanding, that's a real plus. Um, you know, obviously, you, you know, integrity is, is a given uh, as, as an attribute. You've got to be working hard. That's sort of a given. But it, my recommendation when, when people get that CEO role and, and I chat with them, it's first thing I say is, okay, you really have three key roles as a, as a, as a CEO. One is to make sure you've got a good viable strategy. And, you know, if you, if you, if you don't have uh, that in place, you can either develop it yourself or, or partner with one of the strategic planning firms to help uh, get that in place. So you need it. You, you need a good viable strategy and a, and a viable strategy. If you say, okay, well, how do I know if I have one, you should be in our business, basically, well, in strategy in general, you have two key measurements. One is you're profitable and, and the other is you're growing. So in our business, I would say as a rule of thumb, you should be growing your assets roughly at about seven and a half percent a year, and you should be growing your equity or your your capital at about seven and a half percent. If you're doing both of those, you've got a viable strategy. If you're not doing both, something's missing. Either you're not profitable enough or you're not growing fast enough. So you need to have a good viable strategy, number one. Number two, and integrated with that strategy really is that enterprise risk management. And that I think has been one of my strengths over the years, particularly drawing on my economics background and the trade-offs that you have to make in, in economics. The, the risk management, that enterprise risk management is critical. And as you launch new strategies, you've got to make sure you have those risks accounted for. Uh, and so that's number two. Number three, which is really the big one of the three, uh, and probably a good half my job, is making sure I've got the right people in the right place. And and uh, that's more and more the driver of, of success over time is having the building that that high performing team. And and again, circling back to the thing about agility and optionality, it's really developing what I call a, a learning culture or a learning organization where you have a team that's constantly learning from each other, learning externally, and, and that really builds that agility in and ability to then execute on the strategy and, and manage the risks at the same time. You, know, you, you came from New Mexico to uh, a credit union in Florida as an outsider. And one of the first I, I, mistakes that I see or I, I should say, I think it's a mistake, is with some with very few exceptions, sometimes I'll see a, a new CEO come in and say, everything that's not what I did before is wrong. So I'm going to change this without understanding the why. Why does the organization look like this? What's the culture? Are these good people? Or are these people who just need a new direction? Or are they doing something that's different than what you did before? 
but maybe it's it's a little bit better or more effective, but it's just different. And, and, and sometimes I, I see the, you know, yeah, you need to build your team. You need to build your confidence. You know, you need to have a good team and you need everybody on board with you. Um, but sometimes I, I get nervous with the, I'm going to rip the whole place up just because it's not what I did in the past type of strategy. You know, how, what was your, th- what do you think of that? And what was your thought process going in as an outsider to a new credit union looking and looking back, uh, what did you do right? And, and what maybe would you do a little different? Well, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with the gist of what you're saying. I mean, specifically when I came here to, to uh, launch 11 years ago, I mean, it was a well-capitalized credit union, uh, 12.5% roughly capital, but it, loan balances were, were quite low. I think it was about a 38% loan to share, about 33% loan to asset. So it had been really underperforming. It had been floundering for about a decade. They had a long-term CEO who retired, and then it sort of floundered for a little while. So there was an urgency in terms of, okay, it's well-capitalized. You know, there's not the, the financial pressures to, oh, cut costs and do anything dramatic. So I had the luxury of, you know, sort of getting to know the team, getting to know the community, and, and really plotting a, you know, planning a, a strategy out over time. Uh, that that then built really build velocity in that execution of the strategy over time. So each situation is different. When you come in from the ex- externally and CEOs in general at credit unions as well as in business, if you're an external CEO, you actually have a lower success rate. So the odds are a little tougher. And part of that is just because you have to build relationships internally with with your staff. And, and to, with the board as well, to some extent, but typically they're the ones that hired you. So they've, they've got a little bit more confidence in you right there. But you have to build those relationships and relationships start with trust. And, and that takes a little bit of time. So, you know, when you, a new CEO comes in, generally speaking, I counsel them unless it's an, you know, there's a critical situation where they need to turn it around quickly to take some time, get to know people. Yeah, try not to have that paradigm of here's how I did it at my prior credit union. We were successful. Therefore, we should do the same thing here because each market is different. The strengths and weaknesses of the the credit union are different. So you really need to to spend time getting to know the people, building relationships, understanding the community and the market, and really, again, putting together a strategy that makes sense because every credit union does not have the same strategy and they should not. So... Well, I have uh, a few hot button topics, just kind of a round robin. Uh, I'd like your thoughts and observations into into the universe. And if there's anything else uh, that you want to talk about in today's credit union uh, marketplace, uh, I'm open for that. And and the first one is seems to be the hot button whisper to- hot button topic. And last year, uh, actually, it was a little a year and a few months ago, it was kind of a whisper issue of people said, you know, we're starting to see liquidity and deposits. Uh, we're starting to have a little strain on liquidity. Deposits aren't quite coming in. And, and as the numbers go on, loan demand strong, but, you know, liquidity is, is, is more stressed than it has been in the past. Uh, especially from a historical spaces. H- how do you look at that as, as from a big picture for our industry uh, on, on, on what people should be doing and, and 
maybe some solutions that aren't out there and how long is it going to take us to get back to quote normal? Well, yeah, liquidity is, is the big issue and deposit growth or there a lack thereof. I mean, we had tremendous deposit growth. Everybody knows during the pandemic and now we're, we're sort of on the opposite side of, of that slope right now where the, the deposits that got built up during the pandemic savings period are, have really been draining off. Uh, a lot of credit unions made some investments into mortgage-backed securities and whatnot that once rates went up are no longer liquid and they're fairly long in duration. So, yeah, we're in for a period, I think, of, of slower deposit growth. The money markets and treasuries are offering a, a lot of competition in terms of rate rate out there that wasn't wasn't an issue for the last, you know, for the prior decade. So, yeah, we, we've got to reconcile ourselves to the fact that deposits are not going to be as plentiful. Liquidity is going to be tighter. So we really have to have deposit strategies now. You know, for years, all we talked about was loan growth and, and how do we get more loans in the door. But now it's there's a whole issue around deposits. High-rate CDs will be part of the answer, but, you know, that obviously comes at a price in terms of margin. So one of the things we're looking at at our credit union is actually that we've just launched a full array of business services on the deposit side. Uh, so uh, that's what we're really looking at, that opportunity locally with the small businesses, the local businesses, that as the community banks disappear uh, and, and are acquired by bigger players to offer that local service and local option for the businesses on the deposit side. So we've just started to roll that out this past month. So. Uh, if we talk again in about six or eight months, I'll have an idea of how successful that is. But that's an, you know, one thing we're doing in order to get that next leg of deposit growth. We can do that by leveraging our existing branches and our branch staff as well. So that to us will be a lower, uh, lower cost source of deposits than going after the high rate CDs. But beyond that, I mean, there's no easy answer to that question. I don't think there's a magic bullet. And I think this, the days of, well, we're going to put a CD out there and just kind of turn the spigot on and off as we need uh, are, are done. And deposits, deposits were always a reactive product. You put an ad, somebody came in. And I think it's going to be much more of a proactive product out there selling and talking and bringing them in, uh, much like you do a mortgage loan. So, yep, very much so. And, you know, and, and someone I, I don't you don't necessarily have to have somebody with the title of chief deposit officer, but you need to have somebody that, you know, sort of a business unit head here who is really thinking about how do I bring in deposits uh, just like we do with with loans. So because, yeah, this is this is a challenge that's not going to go away. If, if anything, it could even get tougher for us. So. So I sold my house uh, a few months ago and, and moved to the mountains. And when I sold it, I, I told people, boy, uh, rates uh, are, are really kind of at a high point. They're just going to keep, I think, trickling down the rest of the year. And, and as we record this in August, rates have done, uh, interest rates have done nothing but climb up. Uh, give me your crystal ball on interest rates. Oh, okay. Well... An honest economist will tell you they cannot predict interest rates, but uh, but having said that, I'll, I'll I'll give you give you my attempt as as an as an amateur economist. 
Uh, I think my, you know, my working assumption right now for next year is interest rates are going to stay largely where they are today. Um, we may see short rates start to drop later in, in the year next year, but uh, the Fed, I don't think, is going to be pulling back that quickly on on the interest rates, on the, on the short-term interest rates, uh, mainly because job growth is still so robust. So I, I think we're, we're back to a more what I would call a more normal period economically. Uh, you know, from the great financial crisis onward, we've been the last 15 years sort of in this artificial environment of tons of liquidity and low interest rates. And it really was driven by the fact that inflation was very low, partially from some of the international factors and, and whatnot. But uh, that's now largely played out. And so we're, we're in a, back into a more normal environment where inflation is going to be higher. And, and we'll, as a result, interest rates will be a, a higher as well. So uh, I'd say we're probably looking at a period of sort of what I would call more sluggish growth, say 2%-ish, two percentage, two to two and a half, somewhere in there as a baseline. Uh, trajectory for, for economic growth. And again, that goes back to demographic issues. In, in general, the potential GDP of an economy is the combination of two numbers. One is your growth in the working age population, age 25 to 54 is sort of the standard measure. So you have that growth in that population plus, plus the increase in productivity. So the, the growth in the working age population is very uh, small now, and, and I think it's four-tenths of 1% is what's projected for this decade. So you add on, you know, generously 1% in, in productivity, and you're still, you know, not even at quite at 2%. So that's going to constrain economic growth. And, and uh, so I'd, I'd say baseline, we're looking at similar economy to what we have today probably moving forward. Yeah, I always say, uh, you know, I, I remember when I was young, they used to talk about the overpopulation in the world. And then, of course, the exact opposite happened. And, you know, if I, I have two soon to be college age kids and it feels really good for their job prospects because there's not as many young people and I think they can get a job. But I always say we, we need people for the economy and that's going to be I think that labor market imbalance is going to hit us uh, and, and that's going to really impact us over the long term. Oh, yeah, I've, I've dubbed it the challenge of the decade. In fact, uh, the is really the the shrinking, so to speak, shrinking uh, workforce, technically not shrinking, but it's just growing slower than we're growing jobs. So it feels like it. And that's not a challenge that's going to go away. In fact, uh, to circle back to one of the earlier points, I think we have six initiatives is probably a strong word, but there's six things we're doing to help uh, deal with that shortage of labor. And one of them is, is to work with CUSOs. Because, for example, with MBFS, we've got the, the business lending capabilities and we've got almost 300 million in our portfolio and we've hired two people. Uh, you know, MBFS provides the relationship managers, generates the loans for us and, and, and does the servicing as well as the, the funding and closing. So we're able to, to grow significantly there without adding staff by using that CUSO model. So the CUSOs really can be an important uh, one of the factors to help uh, address that, what I call the challenge of the decade of the, of the shrinking uh, labor force. Uh, I'm, I'm going to wrap one up with one last topic here. 
uh, how do you tackle succession planning at your credit union uh, and, and advice for others at, at, at your level, but, but also throughout the organization? Oh, that, that's really a great question. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, uh, to me, succession planning actually starts at, at the front line of the organization. We have a succession planning document that we update at least once a year uh, formally. And it, it has in that document every leadership position, everybody that supervises someone else is on that, is on that matrix. Because in order to have a good succession plan at the top, you know, for the CEO and the senior management team, which is where most people think about starting. But actually, in order to have that, you have to have people developing throughout the organization and coming up and potentially coming up through the organization. So we have, as I said, every supervisory position we have, we have on a matrix with uh, who, who's, who is that, you know, the manager in that area who are they developing where are they at in the development uh, process and what they're doing to to continue to develop them and we have I think four rungs in there of you know someone who's really just the sort of a has long-term potential but is not at all ready and then various stages of being ready to to, um, to actually ready now so it really starts at the at the bottom part of the organization, and most people try to approach it top down. It's really bottom up. That that's that's good insight and advice. Well, well, Joe, we could do this for a couple hours, but uh, people probably wouldn't listen for a couple hours. But uh, I always enjoy my conversations with you and insight. And uh, I hope to make a return trip to Florida very, very soon uh, as the weather cools in the fall. And uh, for those of you in Florida, you know, or, or in the Southeast and want to connect with Joe, Joe's very active on LinkedIn. Uh, you can connect with him. We'll put that his information in the show notes. Uh, any parting words, Joe? No, I, I, I do notice you only seem to show up here in the wintertime, uh, you know, down yes. here in Florida. But I, I yes, can absolutely. That. But I always always enjoy seeing you, and, and uh, yeah, it's, it, we have great discussions. Well, Joe, I've, I've enjoyed getting to know you. I've enjoyed to getting to know to call you a friend, and I call you a board member. And uh, I appreciate your time here and spreading your, uh, spreading your knowledge with our listeners. So this is Mark Ritter from Credit Union Conversations. My guest this week was Joe Meraki, the CEO of Launch Credit Union in Florida. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast network so we pop up in your feed every two weeks. And thank you for your time and uh, thank you for listening to us and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Credit Union Conversations podcast. Have a question? Visit markritter.com for more information.